Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, uh, we are looking at the subject of Sabbath. The title of this message is Rest as Resistance. In a world that is so crazy busy all the time, in a world that values overwork and overextending ourselves, in a world that values us only for what we produce and consume, Sabbath can become a way to resist the powers of this world and enter into the life of Christ. So, let's head over to North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington for this message entitled, Rest as Resistance. Thanks for listening. Last week, we started a series we're going to do for a couple of weeks here um, t- entitled Life Connected. And the idea of this series is we're going to look at a different aspect or realm of life and how we can interact in that realm of our life in a way that connects us more with God, connects us more with Christian community, those outside the church, and then even with our own hearts. And so that is kind of the overarching idea of this series. How can we get our hearts in a place to where we can be hospitable to what the Holy Spirit is doing so we can bear spiritual fruit as individuals and as a community? So last week I talked about uh, the, the place of giving in our lives, being generous, setting aside a portion of our income just for generosity and how formative that can be in our lives over a period of time uh, and, and how that really sets us up to be hospitable to the Spirit of God, learning to live on uh, the rest and setting aside some for, for giving. But today I want to talk about something that I, I honestly, I think if if you would allow this message to sink in, I think this has the power to revolutionize your life. Now, to, to enter into what we're talking about, uh, just as with last week, it may come down to you got to cut some things out of your life or maybe it, it becomes a goal. But, but what we're going to talk about today is Sabbath, the practice of having disciplined rest. And that sound odd, disciplined rest. <laughs> but the discipline of shutting everything off. So we've got a whole lot of uh, things to go over today, so I'm just going to jump right in. And so to begin with, I want to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, one of my favorite chapters, because as a songwriter, Genesis chapter 1, it's like song lyrics. It's like poetry, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered above the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God divided, separated the light from the darkness, calling the light day and the darkness night. And then that was the end of the first day. And then we see these refrains, and you get this, this poetic rhythm. God creates something, and then God stands back, and he looks at it and says, it's good. You know, it's okay to take pride in the stuff you do. It's okay to, like, it, that's a God thing. Like, when you, you ever have that feeling when you mow your lawn, and you look back over it, and you go, 
That looks good. It ain't going to look good for more than about two days in Louisiana, but it looks really good. There's, there's something about creating and, and doing something and, and just standing back and looking at it. And, and we see this refrain over and over. God creates something, and he steps back and he goes, I did pretty good there. That was good. And then there was morning, there was evening, and then the next day God does it, and the next day. And every couple of verses we see this unfolding of creation that is getting more complexity of life and more intricacies and more interconnectedness till on the sixth day God creates the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. Genesis 1.27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over the living creatures that move on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he made, and it was very good. Every day up to this point, God just looked at it and said, that's good. On the sixth day, he goes, that's very good. It's exceedingly good. I did really well. This is an important thing because people tend to often look at the created world and, and, and human beings. We, we often have this idea that, well, you know, creation's just so messed up and stuff. No, God created a good world. A good God creates a good creation, and it was really good. But when we turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, there's something a little bit strange. Genesis chapter 2 opens up, well, it's, it's, it's strange in one sense. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he'd done. Isn't that an odd thing to think of God taking a day off? I mean, when you think about it, like, when we talk about God, most often we start with God as powerful. I mean, that's the starting place. We, and, and particularly in this, we've just seen God creates the whole universe. What, why would somebody like that need to take a day off? And we're comfortable with, with talking about God being omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing large and in charge and in control. We are comfortable about that kind of language of God. But this idea that even God needs to take a break, that, that, that's, that's an odd thing for us to consider. And yet, it's right there in your scriptures. Even God needs to take a break. And God, exactly. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And God created us in his own image. Which brings me to the next point. And this is a little side point. But this really, I think, can under, help us understand what sin is. In Genesis chapter 3, which is commonly referred to as the fall, it says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. 
You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first temptation mankind ever faced was that you can be like God apart from God. That God is withholding his goodness. If you just take this other route, God's afraid that if you know this, God's going to become irrelevant. God's insecure. But, but the reality is what the serpent is getting at, it's, it's the fundamental lie that is at the heart of every sin that human beings partake in. That we can be like God apart from God. But we see in Genesis chapter 1 that God creates human beings, what? In his own image. God's plan from the very beginning was that we would be like God but that we would be like God through worshiping God and being in relationship with God. And as we were formed by that relationship, then we could handle the capacity to have the nature and character of God and to rule and reign over creation as God intended. We will never be God, by the way, but we can be like God, and God intended that. The Satan, Satan comes to, to Eve, or the serpent comes to Eve, says you can be like God apart from God. And the reason I said all this is because when I think it, when it comes to the practice of Sabbath keeping, that is the big temptation that faces us, that we can live like God. And we can see, we, we, we tend to think that God never needs to take a break or rest or everything. So we act like God. We take on more work and more stuff than we could ever possibly do in a good, healthy way. And our lives physically, emotionally, relationally suffer because you can't be God apart from God. And the very God who created the whole world and everything in it, even he rested. <laughs> And if we are going to be his people, if we are going to enter into this connected life that we're talking about, it requires that we be the kind of people who learn how to shut things down on a regular basis and rest. Now, this ain't going to be a very popular message, probably. But here we go. I want to give us a brief history of the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, which is on the front of, it's the only scripture I put on the uh, your bulletin today, but... This is from the Ten Commandments. Commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the first command God gives them is every week you need to shut things down and, and, and take a day off. Every week. Number one. The second, you have a Sabbath of years on the seventh year. Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 11, I'm not going to read it all, but God says at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Wouldn't this be a cool thing if we could bring this back to bear? <laughs> Glory. 
At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling has been reclaimed. So not only do the Israelites get in the practice of taking rest every week, but every seven years, it's a, it's a different kind of Sabbath. Now we're, we're, we're freeing you not from the physical burdens of your everyday life, but from the stress of debt. It's canceled. But not only that, there's another interesting thing that occurs about this uh, Sabbath of years, which is called the, I think it's called a Shmita, Shmita? Yeah, Shmita. Yeah, if you're looking for a name for one of your kids, um, <laughs> Shmita, get over here, boy. <laughs> In Leviticus 25, it says, The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites, say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. The very land. For six years you sow your fields, and for six years you prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow of your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your unintended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you. So on the seventh year, people get released from debt And then you just take your hands off and let the land grow fallow. You just let it return back to the wild. We know in modern agriculture that if you just keep planting crops on the same piece of land without stop, that soil is eventually going to get rid of all the the nutrients and the minerals, and it's going to be good for nothing. You can go to places all over the world that used to be excellent farmland that are just destroyed from overuse. Think about this. Thousands of years ago, an agricultural people in the Middle East started this practice that God ordained every seven years they're going to take their hands off. So on, the seven, on, the, on these seventh-year Sabbaths, people got freed from debts, the land got a break, but there was one other thing. Slaves got free. Now, the Bible is, is pretty um, ambivalent on the issue of slavery, And this is one reason back in the 1800s there were so many Christians who were like, God wants us to have slaves. And they came up with elaborate arguments because the Bible doesn't seem to condemn slavery. But when you look even in the Old Testament, the slavery that existed under the Old Covenant, it had an end. You know, all over the world, there were classes of slaves. There was entrenched slavery going on in, the, in, the, in ancient Asian cultures, in South America, in Africa. There were groups of people who might be generations and generations of slaves and never to be broken out. But, but God commands them, on the seventh year, you let your slaves go. They can get free. So the, 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 in a way, these Sabbath years were an anticipation of the gospel. You know, when Jesus reads the, the Bible first time in the temple, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to, to, to open the blind eyes, to, to, to heal the sick. And, and Jesus keeps going on. Isn't that what Sabbath kind of reminds you of? God is building into the rhythm of this people, this rhythm of freedom, of the land resting, of, of, of canceling of debts. So you had weekly Sabbaths, you had the Sabbaths of years, then you had 
the Sabbath of Sabbath years, which was after 49 years, uh, you would have the year of Jubilee, which was just a kicked up version of the seven year uh, Sabbaths as well. And on the year of Jubilee, slaves and prisoners would be free, debts would be forgiven, and the mercies of God would be particularly manifest. Gosh, this would be so awesome if we could do this in our modern world. Then, on top of all those kinds of Sabbaths, you also had the high holy days and festivals, which were actually considered a type of Sabbath as well. And these were the festivals that God commanded. I love that God commands his people to have a party every, <laughs> every few weeks. <laughs> every few weeks. So you've got the Passover which is a week-long festival. You've got the Feast of Pentecost, which is several days of celebrating the first fruits. You've got um, the Festival of Trumpets, the Festival of Booths. You've got Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There's all these Sabbaths that are, that are extended periods of time work throughout the schedule. And so imagine this. You have grown up enslaved in Egypt, and your people have been slaves for 400 plus years, four centuries of slavery, much longer than the United States has been a country. Imagine how your identity would have been formed by being slaves in Egypt. Your worth is only in your production. You know, you got to keep your head down and make bricks. In, in, and in Egypt, it's a restless economy. There's no rest. There's no days off. Every day you make bricks. And as long as you make bricks, you're of value. But the day you can't make bricks, you're expendable. Now, when God breaks his children out of, out of Egypt and takes them into the promised land, it almost looks like they're going from a place of, of, of prosperity into this desert wasteland. But what God reveals is that they're actually leaving an economy of scarcity and going into an economy of abundance, even in the wilderness. And I think it's quite interesting that this whole institution of Sabbath keeping, God doesn't wait till they get to the, to the promised land and they settle down and they've got homes and everything. Okay, now I want you guys to start learning how to, to take a rest. No, while they're in the wilderness for 40 years, God begins making them, <laughs> commanding them to observe the Sabbath. So think of how weird that would be to come out of slavery you're wandering through the desert. You have no idea where your next meal's coming from, but God keeps putting this uh, angel food cake stuff out on the ground every day, and you're eating it. But every six days, you have to just trust that, that you're going to have enough food for the next day. Imagine how over years and years of seeing God provide you for you in the wilderness, how that Sabbath would actually begin changing your mind. Because now you're beginning to see that your identity is not in your job. Your identity is in your relationship with your creator. And he's the one that's got you. And he's, got, he's the one that's going to take care of you. Now, one last thing I want to say. There's a couple examples in the New Testament where Jesus bumps into a toxic version of Sabbath keeping, which was adhered to by the Pharisees. Mark 2, 23 through 27, it says, On the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain, and the Pharisees said, Look what they are doing, what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, The Sabbath 
was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So before we get any further, I just want to say this. I believe in a New Testament version of Sabbath. It's not uh, something that we need to legalistically follow as if we get extra points with God because I took a day off this week, God, you know, bless me. No, you weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. The Sabbath is God's gift to you. There was another example where Jesus gets in trouble because he heals someone on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, don't you think it's okay to do good on the Sabbath? And we can see, we can kind of see Jesus' responses to his critics of the things that he does on the Sabbath uh, basically come down to this. The Sabbath is intended for human flourishing. It's the gift of God that we could flourish. So, yeah, on your Sabbath day, what is it okay to go do something good for somebody? Yeah, that's perfectly cool. Uh, is it okay to, to walk around and pick grain? Yeah, that's fine. The Sabbath was made for you. So when we talk about Sabbath, yeah, under the Old, old Testament, it was a required thing that you do one day a week. We live in a modern-day world where, obviously, you know, probably many of you work in the service industry or you work jobs where, uh, you know, like for me... Uh, Saturdays and Sundays aren't a day off. That's, that's the, the highest work days of my week. So I take my Sabbath on Mondays, you know, that Monday's my day off. But I don't think it really matters when you take your Sabbath. It's just that you take a Sabbath. You take a day to unplug. Yeah. And this is where the Sabbath actually becomes a way of resisting the powers of our world. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 verse 2 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What Paul is saying is that our, you know, the the truth is every one of us in here is being formed. You are being formed. You are being shaped to think certain things and to, to understand the world in a certain way. Now here's the deal. You can either be proactive on, on how you are being formed or you can just let society form you. And Paul said, if, if you just walk around without any, any thought, this world is going to squeeze you into its mold. And what is, our, what is our world's way of thinking when it comes to work? Well, my experience of it is you are what you produce. You are what you consume. I mean, think about this. Um, have you ever had somebody ask you, you know, how, how your job is going. I, I'll, I'm not going to ask you if you say this. I'll just share my experience because I, I figured some of you probably know what I'm talking about. But sometimes I'll have somebody like, hey, how's it going? Oh, just staying busy, man. I'm, I'm working 60 hours a week. And we wear that as if it's a badge of honor, don't we? Like, you feel like you're a slacker if you're only working 40 hours a week. Is, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, like, oh, yeah, well, you could work 40 hours a week, but that's because you just, you're just a slacker. You don't care. You know, you're just not a hard worker. It's, it's a crazy thing. We value overwork in this country. We value people who live beyond their means. But the reality is, if you go down that path, if you never get a break, if you never take time to rest, if you never take time to enjoy the fruits of your labor, that's not a good path to go down. Overwork leads to stress. Stress leads to burnout, which leads to depression. 
which becomes the fuel for addictions, which leads to shame, which oftentimes leads to more overwork because you're ashamed of things, so you throw yourself into work and you just repeat this cycle. Why am I saying this? Because my name's Crispin, and I'm a workaholic. (laughs) Y'all are supposed to say, hi, Crispin. Thank you, thank you. I feel very validated here this morning. You know, I'll share a little bit of my struggle with this. Back in, and I think this is fairly common, I'll I'll speak for a lot of guys, I think this is fairly common for a lot of guys in their uh, mid-20s, early 30s. I began to develop a a very toxic work ethic in my 20s. I was going to, to... Southeastern University full-time, taking 18 hours worth of classes. I was working a job. I was married, and we had a daughter, newborn daughter. We're doing all these things, and I'm just working my butt off all the time in all these different ways. And, hey, when you're 25, you can do that. Those of you who are in your mid-20s, you can, you can pull that off for a few years. <laughs> but... When I finally got up to around my 30s and started to actually get the, the first kind of like real uh, jobs that, that were consistent, uh, I came on staff at the, uh, as the worship leader at the Vineyard in Kenner. And when I came on staff there, they were doing five weekend services, and, uh, which was great for my workaholic self who was getting pride in how much I overworked. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to work at the church that does five services. And by the end of that first year, they were up to seven services. And there were weekends where between the gigs that I was playing outside of church and the seven weekend services that we were doing, I was literally singing 20 hours in between a Friday night and a Sunday afternoon. And that whole first year, I didn't even realize staff people could take a weekend off. So I, was, I did like 52 weekends of, of seven, uh, five to seven services uh, in that first year. And I did it with pride. So I'm a hard worker. Not like these other slacker worship leaders that only do one, one weekend service. So by the end of that first year at the Cantor Vineyard, I had led the equivalent of what most vineyard worship leaders lead worship-wise. Uh, you know, I'd done like seven years' worth of worship. Um, and needless to say, at the end of that first year, I was burned out. I didn't want to do it anymore. What made it worse was a couple of years later, Katrina hit. And our church had just got a new building we were prepared to move into right when Katrina hit. Actually, we had to, uh, our, our opening service was, was just a few days after Katrina, and, and we lost like, you know, two-thirds of the church initially. We went from doing seven weekend services down to one service, but now we were in the relief business. And so for the next three years, on top of the stuff that I was doing for the church, and I was already living beyond my bounds, now I'm throwing on to that, cooking for teams, doing uh, car- carpet, and, and it was all good stuff. And listen to me, this was all worthy stuff, and I don't regret any of the stuff that I did. But I wasn't taking care of myself. And Dina started telling me things like, you know, me and the kids are tired of getting leftover Crispin. Leftover Crispin is worse than regular Crispin, by the way. (laughs) And she would tell me things like, you don't know how to relax. Every time you're home, your mind is somewhere else. You can never be present to me and the kids. I'm like, what are you talking about? Let me check my email. Um, I was really starting to get into a place where 
physically I was I was exhausted. Emotionally I was spent because I didn't know how to stop. Because in a way, work had become my addiction. You know, when you talk about workaholic, it's an addiction like anything else. Because it is something that you use to avoid the harsh, painful things of reality. I remember reading John Eldridge in his book, Wild at Heart, and he says, talks about how he had a mistress. And his mistress wasn't his secretary. It wasn't some woman he met on a business trip at a, at a bar downstairs in a hotel. It was his work. And why was it his work? Because he's like, work made sense. <laughs> My wife doesn't make sense all the time to me. <laughs> My kids, they, there's no formula to, to figure my kids out sometimes. But, but my job is one thing that I could understand and I could show up and do it. And because of that, work became, for John Eldridge, a way of avoiding the things that, that he was terrified of in his real life. It became the very kind of mind-numbing, soul-numbing agent that alcohol or drugs can become for people. And so finally, thank God for good friends. About a year and a half after Katrina, I'm not in a great place, but I'm sure I'm working a lot. And one of the people on staff, Susie Scarborough, a good friend of mine, she, she's like, I got this book. I think it might help you. I don't know why I didn't get offended at it, probably because I was so out of touch with having any problems, but this book was called Emotionally Healthy Church. I'm like, I'll read this. So I cracked it open, and this guy, Pete Scazzaro, Peter Scazzaro, who was the pastor of this very successful church up in Queens, New York. You got something? Oh, you're just testifying. All right, got you. I didn't know if you were asking questions. I ignored a kid last week for 20 minutes, and he got a little upset. <laughs> but, but Peter Scazzaro was the pastor of this, this church in Queens, New York City. And this was a successful church. If you looked at it from the outside, it's, it's an impressive church. I mean, anybody who can plant any church in New York and have it last for more than a year is pretty successful. But this guy had a church of hundreds of people, 40 to 60 different nationalities and ethnicities. He was the kind of pastor that was getting invited to consult other churches and speak around the country. But after 10 years of doing this, one morning his wife says, I quit. I'm not going to your church anymore. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean? I'm not doing this thing anymore. You can do it. I'm out of here. And that was a wake-up call for him. What he ended up doing was taking off a, an entire year from ministry and started going to counseling, going to marriage counseling, started really digging into the issues in life that had caused him to be so driven and so focused on, on certain things that he had neglected his own health, his own family, his own kids. And this is why he wrote the book. So I'm reading his story, and I'm like, yeah, this, is, this, this guy's got some things that resonate with me. But I had no idea what was coming up, because in chapter 2, he had this little test you can take on uh, emotional maturity. And I'm like, I got this. I've done the BuzzFeed test online on Facebook, and, you know, I, uh, this, this, this probably isn't hard. And so this test rates you in six different categories for emotional maturity. It rates you as either an infant, a child, an adolescent, or an adult. I'm like, I got this. So I started taking the test, get done with it. I turn over to the answer key at the back of the book. And I was very startled because in two of these categories, I had really bad results. <laughs> Stupid book. What does this guy know, right? 
And after I picked up the book from across the room where I had thrown it, after I read my answers, like a little infant, (laughs) I began to really sense the Holy Spirit saying, no, you need to pay attention to this. Where did I get my two lowest scores? One was coping with grief and loss, and the second was living within God-given limits. I was offended at the results, but I began to reflect over my own life, and I really began to see that for years I'd been in this pattern. Anytime anything bad happened, you know, something that would be a loss or something that I should grieve or feel bad about, I didn't feel bad about it at all. I just pushed those feelings down, and what did I do to to avoid those feelings? I worked harder because you get rewarded for working harder. People value that. And I really began to see that I had developed what I thought was a godly work ethic because that's what our world celebrates. You know, we celebrate hard work. And look, hard work is good. Hard work is good. I think we all need to be hard workers. But hard work out of bounds is not good, and it will destroy you. And so all these years since then, I've been slowly on the process of learning how to incorporate more rest into my life. Now, this got very serious for me. Seven months into planning this church, I had a heart attack at age 37. And I think it was directly tied into the way that I'd been living for all those years up to that. (laughs) Uh, I think it had to do with overwork. It had to do with stress. It had to do with all the things that come along with that. Overeating, (laughs) living in just general unhealthy ways. And seven months into this church, I had a, a, a heart attack. They, they, they affectionately call it a widowmaker. You're usually dead in about five or six minutes. Still here. But I realized uh, very quickly, I've got to learn how to do this different. I can't be a pastor the way a lot of other people can be a pastor. I've got to learn how to work in rest into my rhythm. I've got to learn how to take care of my own soul and my own life. I've got to learn how to structure my schedule where I can spend time with my wife and kids. And it's work. That's hard work. (laughs) Sabbath keeping is a powerful way to resist being squeezed into the mold of surrounding society and culture. In keeping Sabbath, I remind myself that I am not God. I am not the Messiah. I am not the provider of my life. You may not think that on a cognitive level, but a lot of us live as if we think we're God. (laughs) Sabbath has a way of helping you live in a different reality. God is God, and you are not. Keeping Sabbath helps me to not get my identity in my job. It reminds me that my identity is as a human being created in the image of God. You know, Adam and Eve, go back to Genesis, they had a job. We think of the Garden of Eden like they're just hanging around naked eating eating grapes and stuff, but they actually had a job. God gave them a job in the very beginning. It's not that God's uh, against work, They had a job, but they were required to rest. In keeping the Sabbath, I learned to trust in God's provision as I rest from my labors. You know, one of the reasons why we don't take time off is because we start thinking in terms of economics. If I don't do this stuff today, it's going to mean I don't get as much money. 
So we get back into this way of thinking just purely in economical terms. Studies have shown, countless studies. I mean, I've read tons of studies on this. If you work more than 40 hours a week, that you get diminishing returns. We think that, man, 50 hours a week, man, I'm getting a lot of stuff done. In, in reality, the further you get from 40 hours a week, the, the more your productivity actually drops. The more that you're not even getting things done as well as you think you should. In keeping Sabbath, I learned to trust in God's provision as I rest from my labors. Keeping Sabbath reminds me that there is more to life than work. Sabbath helps me to be refreshed when I go back to work. That's one of the best things. If you're not taking time off every week to get refreshed, to get recharged, to re- rejuvenated, then you're not even bringing in your best to your job. We want to be, if you're going to be a hard worker, you want to have something to give. You don't want to be emotionally and physically depleted all the time. Sabbath helps us do that. Sabbath grounds us in the gospel. It represents rest, freedom from debt, the promised land, the provision of God. Sabbath is a foretaste of the kingdom coming. So, in closing, how do we take Sabbath? Maybe not take Sabbath. How do we keep Sabbath? (laughs) Like I said earlier, I don't think it matters what day of the week you keep Sabbath on. Um, but there are a couple of things we can learn about Sabbath from the Bible. One, I think it's important to involve an element of community. You know, for, for many of you, this is your Sabbath on this day, and I think this is a wonderful way to celebrate Sabbath, that we come together, we celebrate God, we break bread, we drink the cup, we worship together, we, we get involved in each other's lives. We are reminded as a community that, that God is in our midst. That's a great way to celebrate Sabbath. What other things are good for Sabbath? Well, hanging out with family, hanging out with friends. See, Sabbath, I think, is ultimately about appreciating the good gifts that God has put in your life. You don't have to necessarily do something spiritual, you know, quote, spiritual every Sabbath. (laughs) Maybe sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just sleep. That's what I do a lot of my Sabbaths is just try to do nothing (laughs) at all. We enjoy God's good gifts. Rest, family, friends, food, nature. And this one I'm not so good at, but I want to get better at it, I think, except I'm so addicted to technology. Sabbath is probably one of the best days of the week to unplug from technology. And I'm saying this as a hypocrite pastor right now. I like the idea of it. I don't like the reality. But I think it's something I'd like to start trying. (laughs) I can do it. (laughs) But Facebook needs to hear from me. (laughs) People need to know where I stand on all the issues every hour. (laughs) So, in closing, kind of like last week, um, we'll just do a little, just a brief little Q&A here. Does anybody have any questions uh, concerning Sabbath? covered it so extensive. They're like, can you let us go appreciate our Sabbath? Uh-huh. 
Yeah, the actual the actual Sabbath and like if you're Jewish or Seventh Day Adventist, yeah, they Jews would actually they would Saturday Saturday celebrate Sabbath beginning at sundown on Friday evening and going to sundown on Saturday evening. Um, that's kind of the actual official day of Sabbath. But the church began meeting on Sundays back in the New Testament because that was the day that, the, that Jesus was raised. So, um, it, And, and I, I suspect back even in the early church, the Jews in the church, because the church was mainly Jewish be, to begin with, they probably still celebrated Sabbath, and then they'd get together on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, by the way. Sunday's the first day of the week. We don't know that. And they would, they would get together, take communion, sing some songs, and then they'd go to work. So it, it was kind of different from the way that we do it. But um, any other questions? Yes. Yeah. 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 Sabbath is a great time to just reflect and contemplate and 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 look. You know the benefits from Sabbath. You're not going to get those benefits in a couple of weeks. This is this is years of processes of letting your life be formed by this discipline. But ultimately, it helps you to in so many different ways uh, to to grow in Christ. Yeah, it's amazing how just stopping to breathe. <laughs> Why don't y'all stand up? We're going to close with a word of prayer, and I'll let you get on to your Sabbath. <laughs> yeah. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of the Sabbath, Lord. And I, I just pray for every one of us, God, Lord, where there are areas where our lives are out of control, where we're just overextending us ourselves, God, where we are throwing ourselves into work because maybe we're avoiding something else. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom on a way out of that, Lord. Lord, and then it, even if we have to take a couple of steps uh, where we're very anxious of, of how we might lose um, income or something like that, God, I pray you, you give us the courage uh, to carve out some time for rest, Lord. And I just, I just play pray your blessing of rest upon everyone gathered here today, God, those who will even be listening to this podcast. I pray your spirit rests upon us, that you give us refreshing, that you rejuvenate us, that you restore us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you uh, would like any prayer this morning, you can feel free to come down here to the front and we'll gather some of our prayer team around you. Otherwise, go get rest. Yay.